Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. It's good to be back. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm Evan Kinley, a senior editor at the LA Review of Books. And on the show today, we have Simon Reynolds, author of Shock and Awe, a new book about the strange history of glam rock. So break out your glitter and your platform boots. You're going to need them. My guest today is Simon Reynolds. Simon is the author of seven books about music and popular culture, including Rip It Up and Start Again, History of Post-Punk, and Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. His new book, Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and Its Legacy from the 70s to the 21st Century, tells the story of glam, one of the most vital and influential styles in rock history, and one that has recently been reconsidered due to the passing earlier this year of David Bowie. Simon, welcome to the LARP Radio Hour. Great to be here. So were you a glam fan when you first started this book? What what attracted you to this subject matter? Yeah, I was definitely a glam fan. It's something that I you know, I remember as a small child, being about nine or ten, a lot of these performers on Top of the Pops, the big British pop TV show that was watched by 15, 20 million people every week. So that sort of was a memory, an embedded memory that I could draw on. And then I rediscovered it later as a conscious pop music fan and explorer rock's history in in the 80s and it's always been something that I've I've liked I've never really had an opportunity to write about it much beyond the occasional Roxy Music box set reissue or something like that so what attracted me about it really was that it was like a sort of definite era and a kind of movement and also like a lot of these people were connected they had these relationships of friendship and rivalry sometimes they had shared management so that it lent itself to sort of kind of collective biography you could sort of connect a lot of people and and have recurring figures and it was a like a good set of interlocked stories who are your favorite artists as a kid are they similar to the ones you you gravitate towards most now do you remember what what attracted you it was the ones that were the most visually striking i guess i remember distinctly remember being sort of kind of Excited, but also slightly scared of Mark Boland and in, in T Rex. Just he seems like this sort of freaky character. That's sort of how I start the book with his memories of of Mark Boland. But you know, I remember Alice Cooper being quite an alarming figure when he did Schools Out on TV. He had a fencing sword and he was kind of brandishing it at the camera. And it seemed vaguely uh, threatening and disturbing. I particularly remember Sparks, the LA band, who were huge in Britain, not nearly as popular in the States uh, until the New Wave era when they had a few hits. But they had such a really striking image and this great sort of sense of of musical drama as well, like their biggest hit, This Town It Big Enough for the Both of Us, is just this super melodramatic, histrionic, fantastic pop single. So uh, those were some of my favourites. I really just love The Sweet, something that I've just loved for decades, and, and my children love this fantastic glossy stomp you know it's very tough hard rock but it's also glossy and and has this sort of pop hysteria about it in your past work you've been very concerned with notions of progress and conservatism in pop music your last book retromania was about how 21st century pop seemed to be mostly recycling its old ideas and past styles rather than creating something new innovating do you see glam in its time as a step forward or was it more of a retro movement well, that's actually sort of what kind of led me to it as a book was when I was working on Retromania, I had a whole thing about, you know, half the books are polemic about the present, but the second half of the book is actually looking at pop and rock's own history of revivals and 
retro movements and nostalgia. And I had a whole chapter on the rock and roll revival of the 70s, this sort of 50s, cult of the 50s that started with it was music, but it's also movies like American Graffiti, Grease. That was fascinating research, and it overlapped with glam, because a lot of glam kind of was referencing the 50s. Probably most famously, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 1 and 2. But loads of the, of the glam artists, you know, T-Rex's music was full of sort of recycled riffs. And I suppose what I didn't quite say in Retromania, but which I explore more in Shock and Awe, is the idea that actually the first great age of Retromania in pop culture was in the first half of the 70s. And it wasn't just 50s revival. There was a interest in the 1920s, the 30s, 40s, even a little bit of the 60s started to come in with a sort of Beatlemania thing that happened in the mid-70s. But also, I kind of also felt that pop music had invented by itself postmodernism in the early 70s. There was lots of songs that were full of like quotes from earlier music, references to rock's mythology, allusions, parodies, cover versions. It was like this explosion of what we would now think of as postmodernism. That word didn't really exist in the 70s, certainly not within pop culture. But that's what groups like Roxy Music and Bowie to some extent and many of these glam groups were doing was a sort of pop form of postmodernism. Yeah, Roxy Music in particular, you, you talk about a lot in that context. And you point out that also that, that uh, Brian Ferry had kind of an art world connection, yeah. right? They were getting it from pop art, from Warhol and the British end of pop art, which was this guy, Richard Hamilton, very influential painter who actually Brian Ferry studied with in Newcastle. So Virginia Plain, the Roxy Music's first single, is kind of a pop art painting turned into a single. It's actually based on a painting that Brian Ferry made that's full of these sort of American consumer, utopian capitalist things all thrown together, cigarette packets and movie idols. Love of Hollywood, love of American popular culture and the sort of the dream of America as this consumer paradise is something that haunts Roxy Music's work, but with a great sense of sort of irony and hints of darkness as well. Mm. You write a lot about the class politics of glam and shock and awe. You point out that the genre, and I think Roxy Music, again, is sort of the best example of this. There's a lot of fantasies of elitism and aristocracy in some of the glam culture. But then also on the other end, kind of a fascination with trash, with lower class culture. I was just curious to hear more about that, about how glam combined these two polar opposite. Well, that um, sort of positions. relates a little bit to the previous question. Is it conservative or is it progressive? Glam, and I thought what fascinating was it was a bit of both. You had the sort of great sexual experimentation, the the sort of idea that you could reinvent yourself in terms of your gender and sexuality. That seems very progressive. It was, you know, a leap forward for pop music to have someone like Bowie say, "I'm gay and I always have been." Seems to have been a bit of an exaggeration, but as a statement, public statement, that was a very progressive thing to say and it liberated a lot of people but at the same time you have the escapism of glam you have the fact that it didn't really have political content in a obvious way compared with 60s music and there is this sort of cult of elitism and a sort of an idea of aristocracy and particularly with Roxy Music their fans of Roxy Music picking up on the clues in the band's presentation and the band's image and their songs kind of created this sort of mini aristocracy this idea of an in crowd and they would turn up to Roxy Music gigs dressed in sort of glamorous clothes that referenced Hollywood, sometimes like full evening dress as if they were about to go to the Academy Award ceremony. It became this sort of kind of arty, working class, aspirational thing that would 
had gathered around Roxy Music and the idea that you could, through that music and through dressing up, you could access this sort of fantasy of a chic, elegant, but basically elitist kind of lifestyle. Brian Ferry then kind of very much literalizes these fantasies when he marries into the British ruling class and puts his sons down to go to Eton, the top private school in Britain, and ends up hanging out with earls and dukes and marquees and all these kind of people. <laughs> Didn't he brag about being the first rock star to join the British aristocracy? He did. Yeah, I, I think he, he probably said it in sort of a, a rather languid, debonair, ironic tone, rather than like a total brag. But I think he was actually proud of that, that he'd risen from a very working class, extremely poor, culturally poor and economically poor background, where his dad had worked in a coal mine handling the pit ponies, the horses that would go down to pull the coal out of the mines and they had an outside toilet. They didn't have toilet paper. It was chopped up newspaper. This is the background that Brown Ferry came from, and his whole life was wanting to get away from that and rise to, you know, this clean, chic, elegant world that he actually managed to do. Well, and then on the other end of things, you have a, a group like the New York Dolls who kind of revel in trash. I mean, they have a song yeah. called Trash in, in this sort of low class and disreputable. Yeah, as you say, there's another side to glam, which is almost looking ahead to punk. New York Dolls are sort of somewhere between glam. They have this sort of androgynous cross-dressing, but they also have this trashy sound. They have the interest in B-movies and pulpy sort of themes, Frankenstein being one of their songs, and this idea of themselves as gutter snipes, you know. So that's sort of very much looking ahead to punk. And there's a kind of, generally in the early 70s, you get the crystallization of this thing. People talked about the trash aesthetic, where you sort of deliberately spurn sort of edifying and improving high culture and, and also middle brow sort of improving educational message-oriented music and art and films. And you love pulp things, B-movies, comic books. That's what the New York Dolls have in common with the punk later sort of CBGB's groups like the Dictators, the Ramones, is this sort of, we're not interested in improving stuff. We're not interested in foreign movies. We're interested in, we're not even interested in Hollywood message movies that win Oscars. We're interested in the B-movies of the... 50s and science fiction, really crappy films, you know. Yeah, sort of wallowing in the trash aesthetic yeah. or the trash culture of America. And seeing that as a sort of a middle finger up to sort of the people who would, the arts and culture establishment and the bourgeois sort of values. You have a great sentence on this theme. You're talking about glitter, which is, of course, a sort of key material. A lot of the glam groups used glitter in their makeup, but also sometimes glam is, is called glitter rock, right? And you say glitter is a cut price gesture towards the regal, shimmering somewhere between class and trash. <laughs> yes, that struck me that it was the cheapest way to sort of make yourself look glamorous was to <laughs> buy this stuff, which is basically ground up particles of plastic, I think, or particles of foil but it was also a very Warhol thing like Warhol the whole Warhol scene which was a big influence on glam they would have glitter parties where they would kind of throw glitter in the air and people were tripping on acid or speed and the incandescent spangliness of the glitter was kind of a signifier of of this sort of regal glamour that they aspired to yeah but price. obviously fake yeah right yeah. or cut price right sort of on a budget yeah. Um, and that sort of runs through a lot. I mean, Alice Cooper is another person. He's got these grand spectacles, but it's yeah. all kind of from yeah. cheap materials. And and a modern day example of someone who used glitter as a, a signifier of somewhere between glamour and trashiness is Kesha. The whole act is sort of, or whole image at the height of her pop stardom was based around glitter being daubed on her mm -hmm. face. You mentioned androgyny earlier. You point out that glam was 
almost an all-male movement. There was, I think, just one major female glam star. It was Susie yeah. Quattro. A little bit later, the Runaways come along, who are sort of, again, a bit somewhere between the glam era and the punk era. Right. But obviously, uh, it involved a lot of cross-dressing, a lot of androgyny, and a lot of kind of flirtations with gay culture. How important do you think this was? Do you think this was kind of opportunistically adopted? Or how deep does the real connection to gay culture go in glam? There's sort of various gradations. I think Boland described himself as bisexual and he experimented, but he felt that ultimately he was more straight than by he was married and then he had a I think married twice his main relationships were heterosexual same with Bowie but I think Bowie had also had a great you know he dabbled but he had a great sort of cultural interest in gay culture he was fascinated by there were two things really that hugely influenced him one was the Warhol the idea of the Warhol factory scene and and this sort of decadent polysexual somewhat nihilistic glamour that they had and then he was involved in the uh, bohemian british polysexual scene around lindsey kemp the mime artist and it said that they had a relationship for a while so he went to a lot of gay clubs at the sort of end of the 60s early 70s kind of took on some of the campness the mannerisms mm-hmm. the fashion sense and really kind of almost aspired to it in a way perhaps it was more that he was culturally gay for a good while than he was sexually gay but you know he seems to have dabbled I think with a lot of the other people who came along it became a fashion and a group like the suite were like basically fairly laddish British guys who kind of dressed up for a lark in sort of glammy women's clothing which is actually a big British thing I remember as a kid like the local football team the local soccer team would dress up in women's clothing to raise money for charity but you know it was like they kind of embraced it enthusiastically and even Keith Moon apparently had a big penchant for putting on women's clothing at any opportunity so drag is a bit more in the mainstream of British culture I think I guess there's Monty Python as well yeah yeah Yeah. often it's played for laughs but there's also a whole kinky transvesticism thing in British culture as well This is Evan Kindley, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from KPFK Radio. And now it's time for this week's classic poetry reading. Today's poem is by Denise Levertov. It's called Psalm Concerning the Castle, written in 1966. Levertov was a politically active poet. She was very politically active against the Vietnam War. Her upbringing is interesting in that she did not have a formal education. Her mother taught her at home. She grew up in a suburb of London. And her father, Paul Levertov, was a Hasidic Jew born in Russia, and he became an Anglican priest. Ouch. Never heard of that before. Psalm Concerning the Castle by Denise Levertov. Let me be at the place of the castle. Let the castle be within me. Let it rise four square from the moat's ring. Let the moat's waters reflect green plumage of ducks. Let the shells of swimming turtles break the surface or be seen through the rippling depths. Let horsemen be stationed at the rim of it and a dog always alert on the brink of sleep. Let the space under the first story be dark. 
Let the water lap the stone posts and vivid green slime glimmer upon them. Let a boat be kept there. Let the caryatids of the second story be bears upheld on beams that are dragons. On the parapet of the central room, let there be four archers looking off to the four horizons. Within, let the prince be at home. Let him sit in deep thought at peace, all the windows open to the loggias. Let the young queen sit above, in the cool air, her child in her arms. Let her look with joy at the great circle, the pilgrim shadows, the work of the sun, and the play of the wind. Let her walk to and fro. Let the columns uphold the roof. Let the stories uphold the columns. Let there be dark space below the lowest floor. Let the castle rise four square out of the moat. Let the moat be a ring and the water deep. Let the guardians guard it. Let there be wide lands around it. Let that country where it stands be within me. Let me be where it is. That was... Denise Levertov's poem, Psalm Concerning the Castle, read by Peter Friedman from the collection Poetic License, produced by Glenn Rovin. I really like uh, Denise Levertov quite a bit. She showed up at Stanford when I was finishing my PhD, and she was just such a great presence in that land of bow ties. I'm Evan Kindley, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Simon Reynolds, author of Shock and Awe. So glam was a much bigger phenomenon sort of commercially in Britain than it ever was in America. There were fewer big American glam artists and the British glam artists, except with a couple of exceptions, like Bowie didn't really cross over as much to America. Why do you think that was? I'm not really sure. I think a lot of it is to do with uh, the role of television in Britain. And this one show, Top of the Pops, was kind of watched by everyone. It goes out to the whole nation every week. You know, there's a lot of kind of middle-of-the-road music, straightforward, sensible rock on it. But then every week there'd be some freaks. It could be glam artists. It could be a group like Hawkwind, who were like these space rockers who had a huge hit. So, But anyway, it became like something where you, these things became very visible. And so there was a sort of... The turnover of pop trends is faster because of the these things like Top of the Pops and the British weekly music papers at that time. And things just moved slower in America. I think America, the cities that were most attuned to glam were... New York and LA and those are the cities that are most sort of like Britain in a way you know LA is often looked to the British pop music New York is just sort of nearer Britain literally but it's more the sort of values and the approach to pop music are similar the heartland of America during the glam era the heartland of America was sort of still in love with British music but it was British acts from the 60s survivors whether it was the ex-Beatles it was Jethro Tull Led Zeppelin, Humble Pie, who were an offshoot of the Small Faces. It was the 60s bands who were selling loads and loads of records in America and packing the arenas. And it took Bowie a while. And it really, only really with, when he took on black music, did he have his first number one hit with fame. It actually took him several years to sort of become a phenomenon. So you mentioned LA was one of the strongholds or one of the places where glam actually was popular in, in the States. Yeah. And you actually have a whole chapter on Los Angeles and Bowie's time in Los Angeles because David Bowie lived here at sort of a 
key moment in his yeah. career. And I thought that was really fascinating. And you suggest that Bowie moved to L.A. precisely because he felt uneasy there or he didn't like it there. So what was Bowie's relationship to Los Angeles? My sense of Bowie was that he kind of became a sort of self-dramatist in, in almost literally the sense of like using places as stages for dramas that he was set up. And, you know, and he'd obviously created these dramatic characters who were sort of personas he was playing, like Ziggy Stardust, later on the Thin White Duke. But yeah, he seemed to have come to LA with the intention to have a really bad time, to be disoriented. And he had, I think he probably had, in, you know, absorbed some of the cultural things that create that sort of image to outsiders of LA, you know, Sunset Boulevard probably and Chinatown and various books, The Day of the Locust. I'm sure he was acquainted with this sort of literature LA is this dark place full of decaying stars and people who get lost in these labyrinths of fame and decadence and hedonism. And all that literature exists that conditions a lot of how people from outside LA, Americans, but also a lot of British people, Europeans, when they come here, they're almost set up to sort of have this bad time. And it's a disorienting place when you arrive because if you come from a pedestrian city with a lot of public transport, you can feel very sort of unsettled and disoriented and helpless i think he sort of came to la feeling like he'd made it as a star and la is the city of stardom and the star machinery and i think he came almost deliberately to have this sort of journey into darkness you know which he did you know helped by huge amounts of cocaine and a lot of occult literature that he was that was the other thing in la is a lot of magic bookshops and a sort of undertow of sort of cultic stuff, whether it's Jack Parsons or L. Ron Hubbard, all, all these sort of strange, kooky, dark, mystical undercurrents in L.A. that he plugged into. That also seemed to be a period when his sort of obsession with fascism and the Nazis started to ramp yeah. up a bit as well. Yeah, that was the thing that he sort of touched on. I think he got there through Nietzsche and that sort of thing where German romanticism somehow switches to become this authoritarian nation cult thing. But one of the things was there was a bunch of books about the idea that the Nazis had all these occult leanings. And that's specifically those books like Occult Reich and The Spear of Destiny. There was a whole sub-genre of these books in the 70s. He became obsessed with them. And it's real kooky stuff. You know, there's a lot of completely unsubstantiated rumors about Hitler having these ritual experiences and regression to past lives and completely... There's no evidence for this stuff at all, really. But he bought it all, and he kind of became convinced that the Nazis had this mystical side that he was fascinated by. And then he also had this idea he wanted to do a musical about Goebbels, <laughs> <laughs> which I wish he'd done, because yeah, I that's... think it could have been, like, big. You know, it could have been like Evita or its Yeah, time. it might have been awful, but it would have been <laughs> fascinating. Um, so Bowie's obviously long-term the biggest star and the most important cultural figure to come out of Glam, although, as you point out, he wasn't the biggest selling artist at the time. And you devote, I think, rightly the most space to him of any single figure in shock and awe. How did his death in early 2016 affect... You'd already been working on the book for some time, right, when he died? I'd actually finished it. I'd oh. actually literally was finishing the last lines of it, writing something about Lady Gaga winning a Golden Globe for her turn in American Horror Story. And that was how I was going to end this sort of section at the end. It's like a where I look at the sort of legacy and the echoes of glam, the aftershocks of glam. And then that very night he died and he sort of pushed everyone, all the Golden Globes winners off the front page and weeks of mourning. And so I was like really not particularly wanting to do any more writing. I was exhausted in the final sprint of finishing this book. But I sort of knew I had to write some kind of final 
thing. So I didn't change anything in the book itself that I'd already written on him. He had already kind of come to dominate the book just through being so interesting and doing so many shifts and moves and rebrandings of himself. But I did write this essay at the end that I almost approached it as like writing a a eulogy Mm -hmm. for a a funeral where you're kind of writing for the congregation as much as yourself. Yeah, it reads like that. Um, You're clearly a, a Bowie fan, but you also seem to have some ambivalence, even in this end bit, which is more eulogistic and sort of sentimental about him. It seems like you have some ambivalence. You write that Bowie made not standing for anything stand for something simply mobility as a value in itself. Can you sort of elaborate on this idea of Bowie? Yeah, I mean, as I, you know, researching more and more into Bowie's life, I sort of, you know, have this huge admiration for certain works he's done, in particular, like Lowe and and the Berlin Records, I think, are amazing, Scary Monsters, Hunky Dory is a fantastic album. There are other ones that I don't sort of particularly dig or I just, like, don't quite know where, what led into that. You know, I think Fame is, like, this amazing song, like, this towering piece of music and I grew very fond of his actually his early music when he's not rock and roll at all he's doing these comedy character songs very sort of English musical but yeah his philosophy of life I think worked very well for him but I don't think it's practical for most people most people can't reinvent themselves like that most people can't go off on this individualistic star trip where you kind of keep changing all the time and it's not practical I don't think it's practical for most musicians to be honest and in practice most musicians have a thing they're good at and they stick with it and as a philosophy of life, I, I just don't, I think it's sort of Bowieism chimes with a lot of currents in our life. Kept coming across these echoes of Trump in certain kind of things <laughs> Bowie argued for. And some of the people who work with him, like Tony DeFries, his manager, it felt like this idea that you just, it doesn't matter. What you've, Bowie's changes of style and identity are a bit uncomfortably close to, say, the flip-flopping of Mitt Romney, you know, or this idea that you can just reinvent yourself. You don't have any consistent principles. And you didn't really ever say anything, make any political statements except for these fascisty ones, vaguely Nazi ones. That's, if you look at his whole career, there isn't much indication that, I think later in his life, he said something like, I have vaguely socialist ideas. But if you look at his songs, there aren't really any statements that would suggest he's on the side of the angels we were talking earlier before the taping about under pressure his duet with queen and about how there's this very vague sense of social consciousness is, in that i song. actually love that song because it's so clumsy that you've got freddie mercury and david bowie at that point the least sort of left-wing seeming people in pop music and they go on about people on streets people on streets it's like their sort <laughs> of little clumsy attempt to sort of get with the punk era caring about the people kind yeah. of thing Well, finally, I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to sort of point listeners to some of the lesser known but worthy figures of glam. Some of these musicians are so familiar to people like Bowie, but is there anyone that you would suggest people check out? I was a big fan of Sparks already. I wasn't as aware of just how genius their three albums for, well, their early stuff is great in a different way, but their three albums they did for Island Records, the first three, Kimono, My House, and Indiscreet and Propaganda are just amazingly witty clever bizarre music and i also love cockney rebel was a group that was a discovery for me i had only knew like a few of the hits their first two albums are very odd there's hardly any guitar on it the main instrument is violin it's very odd rhythms and keyboards and then you have this sort of twisted persona of steve harley this sort of compelling charismatic strange quasi messianic frontman 
who uh, it's kind of been written out of pop history and mostly remembered for Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile. But that I would recommend those first two albums, The Human Menagerie and Psychomodo. Simon Reynolds, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Evan Kindley. His book is called Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and Its Legacy from the 70s to the 21st Century, and it's available now. This is Evan Kindley, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from KPFK Radio. And now it's time for this week's book review. We have enticed Jill Leovi to come back to the studio from her office at the LA Times once more. She was here to talk about her book, Ghetto Side. Today, she's here to give us a book recommendation. Jill, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What's the recommendation? The recommendation is Hortense Powdermaker's After Freedom. And the reason we should read this book is, and who is Hortense Powdermaker? Hortense Powdermaker was an anthropologist, and she went to the South, the segregated South, the cotton regions of the South in the 1930s and did a very, very close anthropological study. She had been, I think, in islands in the Pacific. She had been sort of conventional cultural anthropologist. She did this book, and she actually did a final work, L.A. readers would like to know about this, on Hollywood in the 40s, where she did an anthropological mm. study in the same way that wow. she'd done, like, island tribes. Oh, what's yeah, that one called? Also considered a very important book. It's a great book. Well, what it's is a it great called? The Dream Factory, <laughs> I think. I think it's called The Dream Factory. These are great sort of poles of life. There were great sociological studies at that time, Charles Donson, Dollard, obviously. You used the Hortense Powdermaker book, After Freedom, as part of your research for Ghetto Side. I did. It's one of the greats from that era. It's my personal favorite. I identified with her a little bit. She was a brunette Jewish woman, I think, from Baltimore who came to the South. One of the things she said is that she did a lot of her work by passing as a light-skinned black woman. And she talks about that in the contents of how fluid that idea of race really was. It's a very limited book in some ways. She said in a later book that she could never talk to men. It was too dangerous for her to talk to black men. It's very centered on women and long, long, deep interviews with black women of the period. It is beautifully written. It's full of astounding insights, and Nicholas Lehman and others have noted this, but you can't believe a lot of what we are told about Black America is new after you've read After Freedom. You realize things go all the way back. She talks about matriarchal families. She talks about sort of personal sides of racism. She talks about the older generation of white men who would tear up when she talked to them about race relations. This is in the South in the 30s. And the reason was, it's hard for us to get our heads around this, they had had nursemaids who were black women. They were breastfed by black women. And she talks about that sort of shift from this very kind of intimate sort of racism to a more depersonalized kind of racism. It's hard to find any book, I think, that is as much about our emotional history of race and is still a very scholarly study of the times. And it's published in 39, and so the research was just before that and the years just preceding you know, that? I, or, I think yeah. she did a lot of the work in 33 or 34, 33 or 40, although yeah, she talks about the New Deal. She actually says a very interesting thing. She says, 
it was really quite revolutionary and that it's where I got an idea about economic autonomy. And in my book, Get Aside, she talks about how it's, it really breaks apart the old sharecropping system just when people could get independent streams of income from the government. And she was a labor organizer and she went to the London School of Economics, right? So she's got a whole economic understanding of the cultures. That she's yes, but at. she also talks to women about the kind of men they wanted to date, about their hopes and dreams. It's not merely a book about discrimination. It's about the joys that people found in life. She notes such commonsensical things. She talks about how everything is different in this society simply because women out-earn men. And that when women out-earn men, it turns out that Nuclear families, not so much. Turns out he eats a lot of the food, <laughs> and it's not that worth having him around. So I think some of these things today would still resonate. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, intimacy and economics, a perfect example. It's also true that right after the Great Migration, very, very soon after the Great Migration, northwards and during the beginning of the Great Migration, westward towards Los Angeles. Right before. Probably, right before, yeah. yes. But right after the Great Migration north, late teens and in the 20s. So is there a sense of a disrupted community in this book as well as a, a kind of ethnography of its current no, no, I don't think so. This is really still a sharecropping community. She looks at that quite closely. She does great things. People were cheated on the settle. And she actually counts who gets a fair deal and who doesn't, which I think is very interesting. I think she said that something like 17, 20 percent of the settles, this is the way the landowner settles with the sharecropper mm -hmm. at the end of the season, were fair, and the rest were cheats. Mm. And just knowing that alone mm. is enough to make you— it would be different if they were all cheats, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that it was sometimes fair some of the time was what made the thing so tricky, and that's a very important thing to remember about the way race works even today in America. And again, the police were not going to be any help. Yeah, she has a little bit about the criminal justice system in the book. She also talks about things like the total alienation, even from getting birth certificates, even from getting marriage license from the court system overall. But she also talks about crime and about sort of the Saturday night gatherings in these black sharecropping communities that would end in violence, an important truth we need to also look at today. I'm ordering that today. <laughs> The book is After Freedom by Hortense Powdermaker, Jill Leovi, author of Ghetto Side. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleana, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>